Do you think of yourself mm. as a diplomat, as an activist, or a bit of both? I mean, to be honest to you, I see myself as a social justice warrior. Welcome to the Global Health Diplomats. I'm Ben Plumley. He's the British one, and I'm Eric Goosby. And he is the nice one. <laughs> and Eric, it is so great to be back doing these podcasts with you. Um, and this time round, we're absolutely honoured and thrilled and um, utterly humbled to be supported by the John C. Martin Foundation for these podcasts. And um, he was a huge mentor to me, but I know you were extremely close with him, weren't you? I was, Ben. Uh, John Martin really uh, identified uh, a need for distribution of the products that he was so central in discovering, uh, saw that disparity from the very beginning. And the first time I met John, he was concerned with access issues of retention for both patients and in delivery systems that could put people in front of effective drugs. So really an honor to be part of the, the continuing his vision. Well, and I'm sorry we're not uh, doing this in person together. Um, I'm in New York. We're recording this uh, at the time of the UN General Assembly. And oh, my God, what an experience. How has it been, Ben? Like what? What has been the top line takeaways from it. And I know the confusion and the chaos that this week brings to New York. Uh, more so than usual. Um, yes, it is like having a tooth pulled without anesthetic. But what is, uh, I suppose, troubling in some sense is that obviously we haven't been able to get full closure on the declarations, high-level declarations on uh, pandemics preparation, uh, TB, and of course, universal health coverage. Um, and I think, as with the Secretary General's report, they're going to be signed off, but not in, um, not by consensus. So we're doing a classic UN thing and kicking the can down the road. But it does speak, I think, to this very interesting tension, which I don't think is a bad thing at all, Eric, but which is about the global South and particularly Africa saying, hey, we're here. This is as much about us as it is about you Northerners. And we need a place at the table. It's very true. I think that tension has been there from the very beginning of uh, our attempts at PEPFAR to put program in countries that were either struggling to stand up program or had uh, more of a prevention focus on their effort with the population. I think the ability to uh, acknowledge the need in the in the southern country portfolio and to see where the northern countries can continue to support and expand that capability, but with an emphasis on developing delivery systems that are uh, permanent and remain there for the population to receive uh, both information and new diagnostics and therapeutics as they are developed. That speaks to HIV, it speaks to TB, and it speaks to COVID. There's one other thing, Eric, that is, um, I suppose we shouldn't be surprised about this. But of course, um, you know, the UK prime minister, the French president aren't here. They're not showing it the sort of gravity that you would have thought they would do in the past. Biden, of course, was here. We'll come back to him in a second. But Zelensky is here. And I am a bit taken aback that he hasn't had entirely a fully positive welcome and support, particularly from countries in the global south who have a slightly different take on the um, on the need to support Ukraine, as in, yeah, great to support Ukraine, but what about us? And also that, uh, you know, Zelensky's presence here might... Um, detract attention away from what was really supposed to be a health and particularly a sub-Saharan African health series of events this week. Does that surprise you at all? 
You know, I share uh, a chord of disappointment when uh, the crescendo that belt was building up to the uh, to this UN General Assembly's kind of health focus. The groups that kind of prepare that crescendo moment for for TB for universal health coverage as well as pandemic preparedness. There are constituencies that drumbeat that uh, will be a little deflated with the distraction. But I think everyone understands the UN General Assembly's role is to bring pressing issues across the spectrum and in a diplomatic context, uh, share and uh, the concerns and the shortcomings of responses. And it's the only forum in which we have an opportunity to do that. So I... I want to protect that as well, but I am disappointed that the health focus was a little diminished. Before we get into our first interview of uh, of this uh, next set of podcasts, Eric, uh, we're recording this at a very strange time in U.S. politics around the funding for PEPFAR. And I just wondered if you had any reflections on that, on where we stand and what you think the likelihood of full reauthorization in this calendar year is going to look like? Well, I think it is a challenge, as it has been with every reauthorization. But I think that uh, the uh, the emergence of a concern in the United States legislature around uh, abortion and whether or not PEPFAR is a conduit through which resources go toward abortion services has derailed much of the uh, typical discussion around uh, PEPFAR reauthorization. Uh, And I think it's tragic that this has occurred. 25 million lives have been saved by PEPFAR since its inception. And the delivery systems that have been built with populations that were not served historically at any point uh, need to be uh, acknowledged, preserved, and continued. It is on that platform that we will be able to continue to deliver and redistribute inequities in healthcare as well as in socioeconomics. And I think those have risen uh, globally to a prominent position. These inequities are driving much of the discourse on the planet. And I think when there's a health issue put on top of that, it just worsens rapidly. Do you know what a fantastic um segue into introducing our um our first interview and of course in these podcasts like you did with um our good friend tony fauci we spend some time talking to a leader in the field to get some further guidance and insights into what it means to be a global health diplomat and in this episode we are meeting the executive director of unaids winnie bianamina um I recorded this interview at the World Health Assembly a few months ago, but I think it is uh, it's quite evergreen. It is as relevant now as ever. Um, and I confess it was a bit of a bit of a difficult interview for me because mm-hmm. going into it, I felt I didn't know that I was going to be agreeing with her. But mm-hmm. what I found was that uh, the goals that we both wanted were... Uh, we shared completely. I may have had questions about some of her tactics, but I think that goes to the heart of what it is to be, let's say, a social justice warrior as opposed to a uh, seasoned diplomat. But it's going to be a fascinating conversation. What are you hoping to hear from her? Well, I'm hoping uh, to hear uh, Winnie's take on the role that UNAIDS historically has played with strengthening and focusing the HIV response. But also, uh, I think she's in a wonderful position to see the uh, role that the UN's uh, efforts to stand up HIV capability remains a strong platform for other infectious diseases and social responses that include an orchestration in the health sector. I believe the relevancy of WHO and UNAIDS uh, and the interaction between the two needs to be uh, worked out better. Uh, Implementer versus uh, orchestrator, 
versus uh, kind of the administration of it. Uh, but the lines of accountability are what they're all engaged in creating. And it is uh, critical that we continue to see the value in understanding the impact and the outcome of our interventions to hold ourselves accountable, but really to correct when we're off point uh, and recover the advantage. Uh, I think letting programs run too long without uh, reform uh, is a typical problem in the multilateral world. And I believe PEPFAR is an example with UNAIDS of uh, uh, evidence-based, data-driven understanding that that evolves and molds itself to the changing needs of the population in, I think, a really exemplary way. And it did that largely through global discussion and the movement of global health into the diplomatic arena. You see, that's why you're the nice one, because you put that ever so diplomatically. Um, You know, another way of saying it, not an English way, but another way of saying it is that UNAIDS and WHO, well, indeed, the co-sponsors generally need to sort out who's doing what, why they're doing it and who gets funded for it. But Mm-hmm. Well, should we should we listen to the interview and then we'll come back at the end and just offer some final thoughts? Very good. Well, Winnie Bianimina, Executive Director of UNAIDS. Under Secretary General of the United Nations, welcome to the Global Health Diplomats. Thank you very much. It's an honor. Oh, no, it's an honor for us to have you here. Now, the first question we ask all of our guests is, what does global health diplomacy mean to you? Okay. For me, it is about recognizing that everyone on this planet has a right to health and that that right to deliver it, countries must collaborate, must cooperate, because diseases cross borders. And so the health diplomacy for me is about countries coming together to do the most important things that realize a right to health, like disease prevention and control, because diseases cross borders, like providing equitable access to health care, and that means equitable access to new medicines, to vaccines. That is an important part for me of health diplomacy, countries agreeing on how to achieve that. It's about working together to strengthen health systems in every country so that everyone can, through their health system, get what they need, but it's also about addressing human rights because when human rights are violated, that becomes a barrier to realizing good health. So all these things have to be done together as a world community, collaborating. And so you use the instruments of diplomacy. You make agreements, you set targets, You share knowledge and technology, and you monitor and track the targets together. This is what, for me, health diplomacy is about. Uh, It's about getting political will for countries to work together to achieve the right to health. Now, you have an extraordinary life. And as Eric and I were thinking about how we wanted to explore health diplomacy, global health diplomacy with you, um, we thought it was worth just reminding our viewers and listeners that you really have quite a unique career. You are an aeronautical engineer. You were the first aeronautical engineer, um, a Ugandan woman. I didn't get that entirely right in my flow, but you... You um, were a freedom fighter. You fought in the bush against... um, A dictator. Yeah. And uh, yeah, exactly. Um, You've been um, an MP. You've been an international civil servant, I think twice. And of course, you were the head of Oxfam. 
and now here you are um, as the executive director of, of UNAIDS. And, and I suppose the big question I would really like to understand is how have all of those experiences impacted you, crafted your sense of self, but also your sense of mission? Ben, did I hear you use the word career? That's not, <laughs> that, that's not a career. That's a journey. I've had a journey that, yes, is quite different from many people who I meet, but that journey has been shaped by the circumstances that I grew up in. It, a, very, a country that was in conflict, civil conflict, and where many people of my age fled, had to find their lives as refugees elsewhere. And so life throws lemons at you, you make lemon juice. But seriously, for me, it's been about immersing myself in struggles for social justice. And this is the common thread in every job that I have held, has been an opportunity to advance social justice. So it's been such a meaningful journey, fulfilling journey, joyous journey, but also with a lot of pain and knocks. And I've got my scars from, from fighting for social justice. But overall, it's a very fulfilling life. The common thread is challenging injustices and uh, holding hands with others, doing it in movements. So I see myself in this role I am in now as having a very powerful platform to advance the, and, and challenge the injustice of ill health, the injustices, the inequalities that drive ill health. And I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Well, that is very clear. I mean, you cannot escape your... Uh, passion and drive for social equity. Now, obviously, you, you're Ugandan, a country that was hit early on very badly by HIV. And did that affect you and your family and your friends? Yeah, very much. I think Uganda was hit, was one of the country's worst hit. Um, I think every family in Uganda lost someone. I lost my brother, Bernard, who came after me in a family of seven children. And I lost many friends, many family members. And I took over many orphans, raised many children. Like almost every family in Uganda was raising orphans of family, friend, family or friends or neighbors. But there was a lot of gain to it. It was pain, pain, pain. It was really a sad time. But there were many positives that I live with today. Like, for example, how communities came together to fight together. Our women's movement, I'm part of the women's rights movement in my country and in, in Africa. We came together from the grassroots in new ways to support families, to raise children, to feed families, to do everything to keep communities going. And out of those came very strong grassroots structures for advancing women's rights. They are still there. So like savings groups, we had groups, for example, which we called in our language, Batakatwezich which is let's bury each other. Mm. Literally means let's bury each other. And women in a village would come together and buy a set of saucepans, a set of several sets of plates and cups, blankets, uh, plastic, plastic containers for fetching water mm. from the river, the basic tools. And they would move into one home when, where a mother or father has died, they'd spend a week there feeding the children, harvesting the crop that's in the field that needs to be harvested for them to eat in the next few months, um, comforting the children, doing all the work with their stuff. 
and then slowly by slowly they'd move out and go to the next home. And these groups turned into savings and credit groups later. Mm. They turned into uh, investment groups. I mean, so much happened there. Also, we raised these orphans, and now they are young men and women building their country. They've got their own families. Mm. I have, um, if I can share with you, about three children in one family that I have supported. One is a lawyer now, working as a lawyer. The other is an accountant. The other one works as a nature assistant. I mean, these things, out of that pain, some good things happened. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I listened to you and, you know, there I am on the other side of the world or other side of the equator in the early 90s and a very, very black, bleak period for me. And I don't remember a great deal of it, but this idea of us clubbing together to do funerals, mm. coming together in people's last few days or weeks to take care of them, their lovers, and occasionally their families. Mm. And I wonder if that speaks to a solidarity that you've been able to mobilize between northern activism and and southern activism absolutely this is movement building and um this is community building and you can start at the grassroots level and find yourself organizing at the global level that's the life i have lived that by learning how to bring people together to solve a problem, slowly you start to find yourself in other spaces. So then I organized at the national level, built a women's organization and other networks, African networks, and eventually found myself leading Oxfam, which is a global network of people from the North and the South who care passionately about the injustice of inequalities and poverty. And working with them was such, I mean, it was such an amazing job. I, I felt so privileged and honored to serve, to lead that movement. Because with that movement, you could see the solidarity between people in, in the North, people in the South, young and old. You know, like in the UK, I would meet families where there are three generations of Oxfam activists, a grandmother, a son, a daughter, all have been volunteering, fighting for social justice in the world, running through a family. So this kind of a culture of standing for justice together with others is what I've grown up in. But I have to say also that HIV how it hit our country, we also saw some big transformations. Our health system changed forever. Mm. It now had to become a health system that found new ways of reaching the last person for preventing HIV. We were actually the first country to turn the epidemic, to bend the curve of new infections when there was no treatment. Yeah. And that was the mobilization through all sectors, all sectors being concerned about a public health issue. And then the health system itself working more and more through community leaders. Community-led responses were experimented in my country. By the time ARVs came, we had good mechanism for getting the treatment to everybody. So there were many gains and there was a lot of learning about how to reach people and how healthcare should be delivered. Sometimes I wonder whether this learning will actually continue to be part of fighting other pandemics. I don't see it happening so well. But I, I want to come back to that. Yeah. But um, I think there is something interesting about the Ugandan experience, whether it's TASSO, mm -hmm. the service organization, or more recently, the Infectious Disease Institute, mm -hmm. um, that, that I think there is a, a center of learning of expertise that is immensely valuable. You know, we used to call it South-South cooperation. Mm. But actually, I think it is also very relevant 
for uh, marginalized communities right across the world. Um, I'm very involved in the HIV response in the trans and homeless community in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And um, I often reflect with Noreen Kaliba about what Tasso did and how we're sort of learning the lessons all the way over there. So I think there is something really quite unique about what Uganda has done. Uh, you're right. And I think also in other countries it was happening. But those lessons, early lessons from HIV and even the later lessons need to be learned and integrated in being prepared for future pandemics. I don't always see it happening because I see even here in the rich countries that this issue of health being a right for all, reaching everyone, addressing the social determinants of health, the economic, social, and other injustices that drive ill health. I don't always see even rich countries addressing it. So you find pockets of vulnerable people, huge health inequalities. If you, I can talk about them north and south, but I can also talk about them within rich countries. The risk, the HIV risk in, say, the richest country in the world, the United States, between a white man and a poor black man their HIV risks is wide apart. Mm. The risk of a poor African-American in America to, a, to, to be with HIV is almost the same as in Africa. And in many, in many settings, as, uh -huh. as bad, if, if not worse. Now, you, you became the executive director of UNAIDS uh, in 2019? Yes, Oh, of UNAIDS. Yes, yes. I, I started at the end of 2019 and then COVID hit well, us. Well, that's right. That's where I was going with this. So you come to UNAIDS and immediately, a you know, the next pandemic hits. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I find so fascinating about you is that at that moment, you became this really very direct, fierce advocate for COVID solidarity. And you particularly saw it in relation to vaccines. Um, can you explain a bit about, I mean, I, I, I'm guessing why that was so important, but it, it might be worth teasing that out a bit. You know, you talked about the impact of HIV in our country. In Uganda, I had friends, close relatives who died just a few months before the price of antiretrovirals dropped from $10,000 a year out of reach of anyone I knew in Uganda down to $100 a year, affordable for most people. That happened when it happened a few months before we were losing people. So there were people I know who would be alive today, family who would be alive today, if that vaccine that was, that ARV that was being distributed to people in North America, in Europe, had been available in our country. So that, for me, was there in my head about this inequity of access to health technologies. So when we were hit by COVID, it was clear to me and to many others who fight for social justice that something may be found to stop this. A lot of money was being put down. Researchers were working. A vaccine might come. But it was so clear that it won't be available to everybody at the same time unless the rules change and the technology is shared. So we started this campaign with my friends at Oxfam, bringing in other civil society to ask that well before the vaccine is found, there's an international agreement about how that vaccine 
will be a people's vaccine shared across the world so that it's manufactured in every region, so that it's distributed quickly and everyone is saved. We didn't succeed, but as always in these struggles, you leave a dent in the wall and others continue. We did raise the issue of vaccine inequity. We did force a discussion at the WTO led by South Africa and India. We supported them. We mobilized the world. We brought the United States to, to be part of the countries asking for vaccine justice, vaccine equity. And in the end, there was some agreement that was wishy-washy, <laughs> but... but that that the world recognized that vaccine inequality was a problem that intellectual property barriers need to be removed to let everyone have what they need in a health crisis. So we fought and we didn't get what we wanted, but we were able to put a dent in the system and we are continuing in this new discussion on the pandemics treaty to insist that if there's anything to learn, one of the things to learn is that without equality of access to health technologies, the next pandemic will find us and leave us where we were with COVID. So it comes back to your comment about, um, you know, viruses and infectious agents don't know boundaries. Absolutely not. They don't know economic differences. And, I mean, but, yeah. but we see that even today in our work on HIV, that we have amazing science for prevention, for testing and treatment, all kinds of tools for what you need. We don't just have condoms for prevention. We have PrEP. PrEP, to give you an example, was um, licensed for for, for production in 2012, right? WHO mm. put it down as a, a health technology to use. Five years later, 93% of all the PrEP was being um, utilized. The people using PrEP were from three countries, the US, the UK, and France. Mm. The rest of the world was not accessing Today, 12 years, 10 years later, you still have many people who need it most in Africa, in Asia, not able to access PrEP. You have the long-acting now, the injectable. I mean, if you are living in San Francisco somewhere, you'll get it. And this, this is something which is giving protection over a long term, several months, through an injection, I would argue that those who are running away from criminal laws, gay men, sex workers in Africa, even young girls hiding from authorities, could do with this, but it will take years before it reaches there because of the power that pharmaceuticals have been given to monopolize the technology, maximize profits before people are saved. This for me, and we saw it with um, COVID, that this was not just about profits, wasn't about profits. What um, just two companies made, Moderna and Pfizer made, the billions that they distributed to their shareholders. You don't call that profit. I call it profiteering. I mean, they were maximizing profits as people die. So there has to be a better way to regulate and to motivate innovators to give us health technologies. It can't be through a monopolistic control of life-saving technology. So th this is really interesting because you and, you and I, end up at the same place, mm. getting there is perhaps a little different. Right. You mentioned PrEP, oral PrEP, and one of the things that I thought was so interesting at that time 
after we started seeing the data coming from the south, by the way, not mm. from the industrialized world, mm. is that we had these generic agreements. We had the medicines patent pool, the drugs that made up the prep, com the, the prep drug, were available not for local manufacture but primarily Indian manufacture, mm. and. So what I learned during that period is that the, you know, the, the process of implementing new technologies can be complicated, and and for me the the, the worst experience of COVID was to see that we had gone back thirty years. We had learned mm -hmm. nothing from mm -hmm. HIV exactly, and we had vaccine nationalism, and. Um, that simply cannot be allowed to happen again. So with the what's happening here at the World Health Assembly, and I should say to our viewers and listeners that we're recording this in the UNAIDS office, and thank you so much for letting us be here, but at towards the end, hopefully, of the World Health Assembly. But local or regional manufacture, that has become, I think, an absolute clarion call now. Absolutely. You're so right, Ben. If the pandemics treaty that is being negotiated and the revision of the international health regulations, if through those two processes we don't address the issue of waiving intellectual property rules, barriers, waiving the rules in times of health crises, I'm not saying on everything, but in a health crisis, if we cannot put aside, suspend these intellectual property rules that allow companies to monopolize a life-saving vaccine or treatment, if we do not get some, we make some progress on building production capacities in every region, we will not be prepared for the next pandemic. Because what we saw is that a handful of companies controlled the technology. They set, the, they decided who will get the vaccine, at what price, and in fact, we're deciding who will live and who will die. Because they could set the price anywhere they wanted, and they did. They maximized for themselves. And you don't think that perhaps the the northern governments that bulk purchased these vaccines so yeah. that there was little available for other countries. I mean, they have some blame is the word here, don't they? Yeah, I mean, we have to speak the truth here. And I know, I mean, speaking truth to power, is you get some knocks, and I got some knocks for saying it as it was. You did have governments of rich countries, if I am kind, I would say they showed weakness <laughs> because they did not rein in their companies whom they had given public money, taxpayers' money, to get to the vaccine. These vaccines were people's vaccines because they were paid for by taxes. Moderna, Moderna was almost 100% funded by the United States government. But to be allowed to set its price and maximize profits and the government cannot bring them to the table to share the technology, to me, is weakness. But if I'm even to be harsh, I would say that governments hid behind their companies and colluded in some way with their companies to maximize for themselves, for the companies, at the cost of their lives and the economies that were shut down in so many countries, the jobs lost, the people who died not from COVID but died because they died of hunger, they died of, of all kinds of babies who died with no uh, treatments for very simple diseases, but hospitals were full of COVID patients, oxygen ran out, and other diseases killed young people, babies, and old people. So we really have to look at this and say, never again. Never again should we allow a handful of companies 
to control a life-saving technology and cost lives and economies. No. We had the opportunity, but a handful of rich countries at the WTO blocked the possibility of an agreement to set aside the rules and share the technology and have production. And they would pretend that the problem is, even if we, this, some companies said, even if we have a waiver of the intellectual property rules, the capacity to produce the vaccine isn't there. Well, this argument was completely shattered when South Africa came up with its own vaccine based on the same mRNA formula as Moderna on its own. So if within a year South Africa could produce it, you can see that if the technology was shared within two, three years, even one year, two years, all regions could produce their own vaccine and save themselves. But yeah, the greed of companies was supported by the host countries. And, it's and so, that, that was really, uh, yeah. It's interesting. Immoral. Again, I don't, I don't disagree with the, mm. the end analysis, mm. but it is interesting to me that you put the companies before the, the country governments. But You know, the governments are as much to blame as their companies. Companies set out to make profits, but they also say they are having a social impact, they are solving problems, but companies are within the jurisdiction of countries should be regulated by their governments. There was a failure by the governments, definitely. We said it many times in the People's Vaccine Alliance, we spoke directly to the governments concerned, and uh, there are different positions, some of them, but ultimately now we want those lessons to be learned. We, Never we, again should we can't go 20, back. so many million people die unnecessarily. Yeah. We simply can't. cannot allow production to happen in the North for a global crisis. We have to have regional manufacturing. Mm. absolutely. And the African continent, being the weakest one, was hit hardest, and uh, came out in a united way, trying hard to get a share of this vaccine, pulled their market together, wanted to buy in bulk, wanted to raise money to save lives on the whole continent. But what they got back was really a slap in the face, a slap in the face and humiliation because there was something else set up called COVAX. COVAX was set up by the rich countries. They didn't involve the low-income countries that were supposed to benefit in shaping it. They didn't consult them. They were running it on their own, and no wonder it failed miserably. It was always setting targets of how much it will distribute, but it was sitting there empty without vaccines. By the time it got a few vaccines, some of them were arriving close to expiring. Right. So really, because the problem was not a problem of supply. No, it was not a problem of demand. Right. It was a problem of supply. Right, right. You had less production than was needed. So having a COVAX that's waiting for a, a product that is scarce, how was that going to help? And anyway, Africa wanted to buy in bulk and, and distribute for itself in the countries, but Africa was told, sit and wait. COVAX will distribute to the countries as it sees fit. I mean, how colonial can you get? <laughs> totally. And again, I don't disagree with you. The interesting thing to me, though, is that COVAX was a Geneva creation. Mm -hmm. It was created right here with very little, no input from the countries it was supposed to serve. I mean, what's that? In a 
in this day and age, we should have solidarity principles, and those are nothing for us without us is part of solidarity. Absolutely, absolutely. And so here we are, uh, seven years out to the delivery of the SDGs. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you whether you thought we were going to end AIDS, mm. but a very good friend of mine said, no, no, the question you should ask Winnie, that it would be really interesting to get her thoughts on, uh, you know, we've been fighting this for 40 years and we're at the point we are now. <laughs> what do you think future generations are going to say of us? Huh. You know, we are at a, a really at a make or break moment on, on this disease because at the pace at which we are, we definitely will not achieve the 2030 targets at the pace at which we are. Yet we have the opportunity to do things differently and move faster and reach that target if the will is there. And that is what I keep harping on, that there are inequalities that are stopping us from reaching that target. But if we want, we can close them. What do I mean? We have the science. We don't have a cure, we don't have a vaccine, but we have many tools for prevention, testing, and treating. And we have approaches that we know which work that have reduced infections so fast such that if you are living in a city like New York or London, communities there have even forgotten mm. about HIV because it's, it's no longer a public health threat. If you have HIV, you have your treatment, you're okay. But that in itself is a problem because in many parts of the world, particularly in Africa, it's still a global, it's still a health threat, public health threat. People are dying. People are getting newly infected and not coming on treatment. So that inequality of access to what people need to access to the science, we have to move it faster. We move too slowly and that's why we got many new infections and continue to get new infections because we don't get to people what they need. We, we, we have this pricing, this need for profits and what have you coming in the way of getting things to people. So we need to move fast to get the tools at the right price through the system to people who need them. We need to remove the policy barriers the criminal laws, this is what I'm talking about. Mm. I mean, if you live in a country like uh, Thailand, in Thailand, they don't criminalize same-sex relations. In that country, if you are a gay man, your risk of HIV is 11 times higher, 11, yeah, 11 times higher than another man. Mm. That's Thailand. If you live in Malaysia, where there's a criminal law, your risk as a gay man is 74 times higher than an ordinary, another man. That's the difference. Thailand has moved towards epidemic control. In Malaysia, they are losing their fight. They are, their infections are rising. Yeah. So the criminal laws are in the way. Good news is that in many countries we are seeing decriminalization, even in Africa, countries like Angola, Gabon, Botswana decriminalized recently. But then you have the other bad examples, like in Uganda, where one criminal law isn't enough, they are adding another one with more hate and more, more harshness and, I mean, it's bad in some mm. countries. So we need to move to decriminalize. We need to fight harder against stigma and, and uh, discrimination that comes through society. And all these can be done, but you need the will. But then we need to remove that inequality of access to finance. When the 
countries with the highest burden, are low-income countries in Africa, are more than a half of them are either in debt, distress, or close to it, yeah. are paying towards debt servicing four, five times more than to health, even nine times more to servicing debt than to health. How can they win mm. against HIV? So we need to solve these inequalities in financing that lie in the financial system. You, like a great global And gender inequalities. <laughs> exactly, which is... Yes. Pardon me, which is where I was going to come back to. Mm -hmm. But like the great global health diplomat that you are, you touched on Uganda and you moved on. And um, I was deliberately not going to raise that because I know that behind the scenes, UNAIDS has worked exceptionally hard, particularly, you know, fo folk in the region. And, and I know that is deeply appreciated. And of course, it can't be forgotten, back to your point about colonialization, mm. that one of those first laws comes from the uh, leftover of British Empire. So. Mm. <laughs> but you rightly raise gender. And one of the technologies um, for prevention I'd love to get your thoughts about are the microbicides and particularly the depivirine ring. What role do you think that has to play? The ring, as it is called, or vaginal ring, women are asking for it and, in my view, have a right to it. Why? Because in this fight against HIV-AIDS, those with the highest risk of HIV-AIDS in Africa are adolescent girls and young women. Adolescent girls and young women are also the ones least served by options mm -hmm. for prevention, testing, and treatment. They face barriers that are the gender inequalities in the society, in the social norms, but also the gender inequalities that are in the policies and the services that countries have. Education services, that opportunity that isn't there for all girls, uh, traditions such as early marriage, sexual violence, mm. all these things. So, Having a range of tools for prevention and for treatment increases the chances for girls, young women to protect themselves or to have the kind of treatment that works for them. People are not the same. Therefore, some, for some, the ring is what will work. For others, PrEP, oral PrEP, injectable PrEP. For others, I mean, people living, women and young women and girls have different social contexts and will use, will need to choose the tool they need for their protection. Now, what we get is that the services, the commodities particularly, for the HIV response in most of the low-income countries of Africa where women and girls are highly at risk, they come from external partners. It's funded externally. Mm. So the funders are mainly PEPFA, which is the American government. Thank them for their generosity. And Global Fund, which is a number of donors and private companies. Thank them too. But in terms of deciding what should people have, I think there should be some humility there. It should not be PEPFA or Global Fund deciding what people should have. They should listen to the voices of girls and women in Africa. If they are saying we want this as an additional tool, I think they should get it. And I think it shouldn't be a question of yeah. Final decision yeah. from And again, if you look at the recent pardon me, the recent history um of the Depivirine Ring, you know, not only did women African women activists 
essentially force a change of US government policy to to purchase the ring in certain settings. Mm. But they also pushed the research agenda. And we've got mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. recent results now that show that in real life, the ring is as good as oral prep in certain circumstances. So I think you are absolutely right that we are in the era of choice mm. in prevention mm. and we have to make those choices available to everyone absolutely and um i th i think this is where we talk about um colonial mentality or colonial policy because it should not be it should really be the a decision of the groups themselves but what what their needs are, not somebody else who happens to have the money. You know, I feel this could rapidly become a confessional, and I apologize for smiling, but <laughs> colonialism is something I have thought deeply, deeply mm. about all my, my journey, which is not a career either, it's just mm. a journey. And I think the there is so much still that has to be yeah. done. And so whether it is regional manufacturing, mm -hmm. whether it is the setting of mm. regional guidelines, whether it is the R&D agenda for local um, local products that, that work in those sets of communities, mm. that has to be the way we go. And those decisions are not going to be made in Geneva or New York no. or San Francisco. Not at all, not at all. But, you know... I always go back to this global solidarity as opposed to colonial approaches. In global solidarity, we saw how it, it was a gay man in the North who came together to fight that antiretrovirals be available for everybody. And they held hands with campaigners in the South. Mm. And, then the, uh, and then the generics were made and then we got there. In most struggles, you're going to find that success comes when you are able to build a global movement. And people in the South stand with people in the North and demand for something. That's why for me, even as you call me a health diplomat, I see it all as um, the lesson I have learned is that power is not given. You fight for it. You influence, you push. Pressure delivers the power. And that pressure has to come, yes, from the inside track of diplomacy where I am, where we are persuading governments to take certain approaches, to invest money here. But power also comes from mobilizing citizens to demand. So I use the networks I have also to apply pressure something that not all diplomats want to use, but I use because I know that the UN is not we, the governments, it's we, the people of the world. So I draw on networks to weigh, to mm -hmm. put pressure on governments. But solidarity is key. International solidarity is not the same as colonialism. Mm -hmm. Our UN system tends to gear towards colonialism. But we have more and more to bring citizens to ask and demand for what they want. I like to do that. It's not always uh, easy, but it's the part I like best. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. So one final question then. Um, and I know we've been all around the houses and we didn't stick to the discussion flow, no. but hey, it's been a fantastic conversation. I enjoyed it. Do you think of yourself mm. as a diplomat, as an activist, or a bit of both? I mean, to be honest to you, I see myself as a social justice warrior, really, and that I can use the tools of diplomacy in this, uh, in a governmental setting. But I also know that people who hold power in governments must be pressured. So I also work with civil society and we pile pressure on them and make demands to, for them to use their power for justice. So 
I see myself as a fighter for social justice who can use diplomatic tools, who can use street power, who can use social media power. And um, it's all about getting the powerful to share power mm. for justice to happen. So I'm not keen to call myself a diplomat. I'd rather call myself a social justice fighter. Well, brilliant. Winnie Bianmina, social justice warrior, thank you very, very much. Really appreciated. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed the discussion. Well, Eric, that was a fascinating conversation. And actually, as I listened to it again, I feel my discomfort uh, that, that I had. Um, and I guess my top reflection is that, I mean, Witty is an extraordinary person, um, an aeronautical engineer, a freedom fighter, um, a civil servant, the head of Oxfam. But what really drives her passion to be a social warrior seems to me to be the experience that she had during the AIDS crisis, that, you know, her family was directly affected. Her she lost her brother. She lost friends and family. Mm. And she she has a fire in the belly about how if the $100 ARV regimens versus the $10,000 ARV regimens had been available to her family and friends, they would be alive now. And I, I, and I think that really colors and drives her activism. There was one thing I wanted to ask you about uh, what she said, a reflection that she was very critical of the pharmaceutical industry and the vaccine industry. She was very critical of um, northern governments, only in so far as they were enabling these companies to behave in the way that they did. She didn't seem to talk about the responsibilities of African governments in particular. Um, and I just wondered what your th thoughts were about what she said and perhaps where we go from here. Well, I think uh, Winnie's uh, uh, correct in challenging the northern country's role in uh, partnering or uh, engaging in a common uh, need in a sub-Saharan African or in any other country, and that those relationships are confounded by a history of imperialism and colonialism that we all still carry the vestiges of. And I think Winnie, understandably, with her background growing up in Uganda, uh, has repeatedly been in front of that, uh, of that energy and the, the reality cr the world it's created. Um, at the same time, I think she's correct in challenging the northern countries especially around issues uh, uh, the lack of access that was reflected in the availability of initially HIV, and I would say TB, but in the COVID vaccine rollout, we saw it all reiterated. Um, the countries that paid for it aggressively developed relationships with pharmaceutical companies to secure the uh, availability of the vaccine for their population in a way that took no consideration of who was allowed to gain access or who was left off, off of the boat. And I think sub-Saharan African countries, Southeast Asian countries were put in a position where they had to scramble and engage in conversations with pharmaceutical companies who were largely only interested in talking to those who could pay the asked uh, price. And I think it's an example where global health diplomacy did not uh, intercede and play an orchestrating role with that. I think we saw a very uh, rich country-driven uh, allocation and distribution of vaccine, and I don't believe the pieces are in place for us to not do that again. I, I think that's right. And, you know, back to us being in the UN General Assembly and you know, really a very lukewarm pandemics preparedness and response, high-level draft, high-level declaration. But look, picking up on what you said, one more thing. She was very critical of COVAX. She called it colonial. 
What do you think about that? I think that uh, it, I think when you look at the intent, it was all the right energy convening the discussion. But when you look at the result of how and where those resources went and what countries benefited from it, specifically got in front of the vaccine and all its iterations, it did not serve that purpose. And I think that the discussions around why have been rich with, uh, I think, the the persistence of the pharmaceutical company uh, selling the vaccine and giving it to the country that could buy it and not to the countries that couldn't uh, is, the, is the core of that, which is the core of a capitalist approach. And that is the world that many of the northern countries uh, are in. But I think in health in particular, the inequity that we carry in ability to have uh, resources and to get populations to access them is not uh, alleviated until we get, uh, I think, serious about in-country, in-region development of drug, local investment and commitment to uh, the molecule, but also to the distribution of it. So the link of that that new capability, that new diagnostic or therapeutic intervention, how you get it to the people who are threatened by the pandemic or whatever uh, is, is critical. And that link really looks like a link into primary care services. And the UNAIDS effort has orchestrated that beautifully by looking at civil society's role in playing the synergizing uh, complement to a government effort to stand up a delivery system. But it takes a village is an understatement, and it takes a sustained commitment is an understatement. And the UN and the global community in general uh, with health and the need for a global health discussion in a diplomatic context about this has never been more acute. And I think Winnie has uh, taught us quite a few lessons about uh, being brave and and truly speaking truth to power that we we may forget for time for, from time to time. Well, look, I guess that's it for this episode, Eric. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing you next time, where we will also look at um, one of our our interviews done around the World Health Assembly. Um, I guess it's just a huge thank you from me to you. You're more than welcome to thank me as well, but you don't have to. Hey. <laughs> I'll thank you even with you. I'll thank your British self over there. So, <laughs> but uh, it's it's always been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and think with you. But I hope that this uh, discussion is able to uh, support uh, and uh, augment uh, the uh, kind of diffraction that we saw in a lot of the UN General Assembly efforts. Uh, we'll bring it back together to get linear with it. You bet. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you to my co-host, Eric Goosby. Thank you to the John C. Martin Foundation for their very generous support. Thanks to Eric Aspera, our director and producer from Newsdoc Media. A particular thanks to Chad Parisman, our producer in New York. Um, our production coordinator is Waisha Raphael, and the Global Health Diplomats is a project of the Global Listening Project. So with that, don't forget to subscribe, give us five stars, and we look forward to seeing you in our next episode. Thank you.